In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. Back in mid-July, I titled my podcast, Is Silver Finally Joining Gold's Party? Well, I think we know the answer to that question. You know, since I recorded that podcast about a month and a half ago, the price of silver is up another 15%. In fact, it's up better than 30% since the end of May. Silver having a sterling performance today. As I am recording this podcast, it's about an hour after the close of the U.S. market. We're almost up 90 cents an ounce. We're at 19.22. I saw it up 19 cents an ounce a little earlier Gold not quite having as strong a day as silver. Gold isn't making a new high. It's up $19.5 on the day, $15.48. Still having some uh, problems with the $15.50 resistance area. You know, GLD, the exchange-traded ETF, did make a new high for this move, but the spot market did not register a new high but I think that's just a matter of days before that happens, if not hours, because silver is leading the charge. It's leading gold higher pretty much the way I said. You know, a week ago, I titled my podcast, Hi-Ho Silver Away, and that prompted a number of people to comment that somehow I had just capped the silver rally uh, by getting too optimistic on silver. Well, that was a week ago. We just hit $18.00. We're now over $19, uh, and I said on that podcast I thought we would have a pretty quick move 
up to about $20. And once we take out $20, I think this thing could really, really take off. You know, what is going to be the catalyst, I think, for a much bigger move up in both gold and silver is going to be the long overdue move down in the dollar. And, you know, paradoxically, when the dollar starts its decline, it's even possible that gold and silver take a bit of a breather or maybe pull back a little bit in terms of dollars, but pull back even more in terms of other currencies. Because remember, as strong as uh, gold has been in dollars, it's been even stronger in other currencies. But, you know, for all the hype, again, about the strong dollar, I look back at the end of May, right? And since May, beginning of May, the price of silver up 30%, but the dollar index is only up about 1% during that time. So the dollar is not really strong. It's not quite as weak as all of the other fiat currencies, but it is weak. Gold and silver's strength is basically showing you just how weak the U.S. dollar is. It's just that that weakness is not being reflected in the foreign exchange markets when all the other currencies are also weak. But the the days where the dollar is the least weak are going to come to an end. I mean, look at the economic data that people are oblivious to as they're focusing on maybe Brexit or what's happening in Hong Kong or the trade war. Look at the ISM manufacturing numbers that came out this morning, August number. They were expecting a weak number, right? They were looking for 51.3. You know, anything above 50 is expansion. The prior month, July, was 51.2. So they were looking for a little bit of an improvement, right? Not quite as weak a number. Well, they got a weak number, but much weaker than they thought. The number came out at 49.1. This is contraction. This is the first time the manufacturing sector has contracted in three years, which means it's the first time it's contracted since Barack Obama was the president of the United States. Now, earlier in the morning, though, we got the release of the manufacturing PMI index for the month of August, and the prior month was 50.4, a very weak number. The consensus was actually that the index was going to dip into contraction mode at 49.9. But in this case, we actually beat estimates, but we still declined to 50.3. And even though the number exceeded expectations, it was still the weakest print for the PMI Manufacturing Index in 10 years. So this is the weakest manufacturing economy we've had in 10 years, basically since the tail end of the Great Recession. So for all the the talk uh, from Donald Trump about how great this economy is, how it's the greatest economy ever, it's the weakest manufacturing economy since the Great Recession. It's weaker than it was pretty much at any point during the Obama presidency. And according to Trump, Obama was a disaster for the economy. He was a disaster for manufacturing. Well, maybe he was right, but now Trump has proved to be an even bigger disaster than Obama. The only thing holding up U.S. GDP is a debt finance consumption binge by the U.S. government and by the American consumer who is already loaded up with debt, right? How much longer can people keep spending borrowed money that they don't have and that they can't repay? And how much longer are companies going to keep retaining their workers when a recession is, you know, staring them in the face?
So how much longer before the layoffs begin? They already came back, right? The government already came back and said, hey, we overestimated our job creation. We told you the economy created a half a million jobs more than we actually did during an entire year. So the whole narrative is crumbling. How long before the unemployment rate, the official unemployment rate, really starts to move up and the bloom really comes off this rose? And people see the economy for what it is. And and when that happens, the dollar is going to turn. You know, the dollar was generally higher today, and it closed well off the highs of the day. And it was down against a few currencies. You know, it was down against the yen and the Swiss franc, but also actually down today against the Australian dollar. Uh, But, you know, the dollar index is still hanging out near its highs of the move. We weren't quite above 99 on the close, but almost 98 0.96, I think, is where the index went up, just slightly positive on the day, although I think we were were up a little bit yesterday when the U.S. markets were closed. In fact, most of the big moves, though, happened today. You know, gold at most was up maybe 10 bucks on uh, Labor Day when we were shut, but then it surrendered uh, pretty much all those gains and came back to around unch, and by the time our market opened, uh, you know, we started the rally again. But the weaker than expected ISM number really lit a fire under it. Although after hours, right, uh, James Bullard is out there talking. And that's where silver made new highs after the U.S. stock market closed because Jim Bullard is out there saying that, you know, we need 50 basis points rate cuts. And the rationale for 50 basis points of rate cuts is because that's what the market wants. So according to Bullard, uh, if the market wants 50 then it's the Fed's job to deliver what the market wants, which, of course, it's not the Fed's job. The Fed's job is to take away the punch bowl, not to spike the punch bowl. But, you know, of course, even if the markets get what they want, even if the Fed gives the markets 50 basis points, it's not enough. Then they're going to want 100 basis points. Then they're going to want 200 basis points. They're going to want QE, right? Because the only thing the U.S. market has going for it is the Fed. That's it. And, you know, the Fed made this bed, And now they're lying in it. The Fed built a phony economic recovery on the foundation of a wealth effect. The Fed deliberately inflated an asset bubble so that people will think they were richer. That was their goal. We want stock prices to go up. We want real estate prices to go up. We don't care about the fundamental value. We just want to push them higher so that people will feel richer. And more importantly, so these overly valued assets can be pledged as collateral for loans so that people can borrow money against those inflated assets and use the money to buy even more assets to inflate the prices even higher and to buy consumer goods that they can't afford. So the Fed didn't create a recovery. They created a bubble. And in order to sustain that bubble, they have to keep force feeding more air into it. The problem is the air is going to come out faster than they can put it in. But the public still doesn't recognize, investors still don't recognize what they're looking at. They still are confusing a bubble for legitimate economic growth. But the Fed is trying to do everything they can right, to maintain this illusion. But look at what is happening. Look at all the anecdotal evidence all around us. Uh, that uh, the air is coming out. You know, some of the poster boys, you know, for the stock market bubble were the ride-hailing apps, right? Uber and Lyft, right? These things came public. They were the unicorn of unicorns, right? Huge valuations before they went public. And both of these stocks hitting new 
uh, lows today since they were public companies. Uber down 5.74%. That stock, I think, is down about 35% since it went public. The IPO price was 45 Came public at 45 It closed today at 30.70. And Lyft uh, is doing even worse, especially if you were dumb enough to buy the opening day pop on Lyft. Lyft, I think, came public at like 72 or something like that. It's at 45. It was down just over 7% today. But if you bought that opening pop, it opened the first day of trading at $88.60. It's almost been cut in half since that, that opening trade. Remember, but Wall Street loved these stocks, right? They were the darlings. And now look what's happened to them. But, you know, it's not just the ride share, you know, app bubble that's bursting. This, this is symbolic of what's going on in the U.S. stock market. Today, the Dow was down at one point better than 400 points, but it did pair its losses by the close. The Dow only closed down 285 points. The Nasdaq was down 88.72 points. That's a little over 1% on the day. As usual, the small cap stocks, the ones that are closely related to the U.S. economy, did the worst. Uh, The Russell 2000 down 1.5%. And the Dow Transports, you know, obviously very uh, involved in the domestic economy, uh, down 135, another 1.34%. So the market is telling you, if you can't see it based on the economic data, that the U.S. economy is headed for recession. But we're not just headed for a garden variety type recession. This is going to be the worst recession we've ever experienced because recessions are always proportionate uh, to the artificial booms that precede them and the amount of stimulus necessary to create them. Because the more the Fed has to interfere with the free market, the more the Fed has to distort the free market by artificially lowering interest rates, the more mistakes that we make, the more screwed up the economy gets, which means the more severe the bust when the market tries to correct all the mistakes that the the government created and the Fed created. One of the reasons, too, that the the markets were nervous coming into trading today is the the new Trump tariffs went into effect on the 1st Uh, day of September. And of course, immediately after the new tariffs went into effect, the Chinese retaliated with some extra tariffs on their on their own, which, of course, infuriated uh, President Trump. Both sides are digging in the heels as the trade conflict continues to escalate. But of course, China has yet to fire the big guns, right? The real big guns in the Chinese trade war is the treasury bond market. I mean, look at what is happening with yields on the treasuries. Again today, the yield on the 10-year hit a new low Right for this move. We got down to one spot 429. We closed at one spot 466, but the 30-year uh, down at one spot 949, just below 1.95%. The Chinese right, are sitting on a huge stockpile of U.S. treasuries. What a perfect opportunity to kill two birds with one stone, get rid of all these treasuries, which are going to be a lousy investment anyway, and win the trade war. 
right? Because the most the most damage that the Chinese could do to the U.S. economy would be to drive up long-term interest rates and to drive down the value of the dollar and increase the value of their own currency, reversing the capital flows out of the yuan into the yuan. You know, we're taking refuge in the fact that supposedly the Chinese economy is suffering so much. Trump likes to point out all the time, you know, while he's exaggerating the strength of our economy, he wants to talk about how much of a disaster uh, the Chinese economy is. Well, one thing that would help the Chinese economy, and it's not nearly as big a disaster as the president claims, would be a strengthening currency. And one way to strengthen their currency would be to dump a bunch of treasuries, right, and then dump the dollars and then buy back their own currency. Or if they're smart, buy back gold. They're already increasing their gold reserves. Why not increase their gold reserves even faster? Of course, that's what's going on around the world, right? Central banks are buying up gold. When you see gold this strong against the U.S. dollar, what is that telling you? Right, that is telling you that central banks or institutions would prefer to hold gold to the dollar. Now, is that preference going to change? What would change it? No. I mean, is the Fed going to raise interest rates to the point where holding dollars becomes attractive? Not on your life. It's not even possible for them to do that. So as attractive as it was to hold gold yesterday, it's going to be even more attractive to hold it tomorrow. Right. It's get the appeal of gold. The investment case for gold is going to get stronger and stronger. And as central banks and investors prefer gold to the dollar, the dollar's days as the reserve currency are numbered. Right. Because once everybody wants to hold gold instead of dollars, that's it. You know, why hold dollars? I mean, originally uh, the case was, well, we're, you're going to get all this interest if you hold dollars. And if you if you have gold, you're going to forego that interest. Well, now if you have dollars, you're still foregoing interest because it's not enough to offset the real rate of inflation. So if, if I'm going to get a negative yield on dollars, I might as well hold gold, right? If I'm not going to get any return on my dollars, then I might as well hold something that the Federal Reserve is not creating. And if you think about the prospects of future dollar creation, you know, I did a special podcast yesterday uh, debunking uh, a lot of the promises that are being made by the new darling of uh, the left or of the Internet uh uh, Andrew Yang, I mean, even though he's still only polling at about 3%, I can see a wave forming. I can see uh, people jumping on uh, and joining the uh, Yang gang because of the promises he's making and the sincerity uh, with which this guy speaks and the, the intelligent way that he articulates a very uh, foolish position. So I made this podcast. And by the way, I noticed on my YouTube channel, I'm getting a lot more thumbs down and negative comments. It seems like the Yang gang has been trolling uh, uh, my uh, my video. Maybe they were just looking or, you know, searching for Andrew Yang and they saw the video and they saw that I was, you know, criticizing him. So they had to immediately come to his uh, defense. But, you know, one of the, the, the aspects of this whole thing that I didn't really even cover that much in my one-hour podcast uh, debunking uh, the, the Yang the Yang promises, but the, the, what I wanted to you know mention on, on on this podcast is clearly the the taxes that Yang is proposing, whether it's uh, higher income taxes on the rich, the financial transaction tax, uh, the uh, carbon tax, the value-added tax, all those taxes added together will barely scratch the surface in funding the cost of the uh, uh, 
freedom dividend, right? The, the so-called freedom dividend that he wants to pay, right? You know, $1,000 a month to every uh, person in America who is 18 years or older. And of course, that's just the beginning of what uh, Yang wants to do. I mean, he wants the government to get bigger and spend more money all over the place. It's not like we're replacing a lot of the government spending with this uh, universal basic income. We're, we're just augmenting uh, all the, the government spending. We're spending more money in other areas, and then we're just adding this enormous expense. So where are the trillions of dollars going to come from uh, that is necessary to pay for this? Obviously, the Fed is going to have to create the money out of thin air. It's going to be inflation. We're going to have massive deficits that the Federal Reserve is going to monetize. By the way, no sooner did the Federal Reserve stop doing quantitative tightening than they've instituted quantitative easing on, on the lowdown, right? The Fed has already started to buy back the treasuries that it sold. Now, it's not part of an official quantitative easing program, but unofficially, that's exactly what they're doing. They started to buy treasuries, and they're going to be buying more and more treasuries into, until they ultimately announce an actual program, a quantitative easing program, to buy a specific and massive quantity of U.S. treasuries. But obviously, that means massive inflation, right, assuming we got uh, Yang's uh, proposal. So even if you are getting $1,000 a month, if prices go way up, you're not that much better off. Uh, and of course, the inflation is not just going to affect the $1,000 a month that you get from the government, right, the taxpayer. It's going to reduce the value of the salary that you're already earning on your own. So you get some free money, but that free money loses value, but then the money that you are already earning loses value. The, the, the value of your savings go down, right? Your investments go down. I mean, you can't, we can't make ourselves richer by just doling out money, right? If people are going to get money they did not earn. See, your wages, your salaries are supposed to be commensurate with your productivity, right? You're adding into the pot, you're producing goods, you're providing services in exchange for which you're earning money. So you're increasing the supply of goods and services along with the money you're being paid. But if you're not producing goods, if you're not providing services, you're just getting money for nothing. Well, then what is that money going to buy? You're not adding value. You're not adding quantity to the supply of goods or services. You just have more money to bid up uh, the price of goods and services that are already being supplied, so prices are going to rise. Or if prices would have fallen, they won't fall, or they'll fall by less. It's all inflation. And even if you know Andrew Yang does not become the next president, which obviously is far more likely that he won't be the next president, but some Democrat will be the next president. If it's not Andrew Yang, it's going to be somebody. It's going to be Joe Biden. Or maybe Elizabeth Warren, right, is going to be the next president. And the one thing that all the Democrats have in common, and in fact, they have this in common with the Republicans too, but let's focus on the Democrats because they're the ones likely to have the White House. But one thing they all have in common is they want to spend a lot more than they're going to tax. I mean, they all want to tax the rich, right? They're all excited about taxing the rich. The funny thing is, though, when you try to tax the rich, you don't, you know, you don't gain nearly as much money as you think. And in fact, in some cases, it backfires. You actually collect less because the rich alter their affairs and they conduct themselves in such a way as to lower their tax burden. And one way they do that, right, is to reduce 
the income of a lot of other people. And so the government ends up collecting less taxes from other people who used to generate income from people who have now altered their behavior to mitigate their own tax liability. And now the government ends up not only collecting less from the rich, but it collects from a lot of people who aren't so rich, who have been affected by the changes that the rich have made to their investing uh, patterns based on an aversion to taxes and based on a mindset of, I want to avoid taxes. I'm more concerned about not paying taxes than making more money. And once you once you convert people into tax avoidance from income generation, uh, then a lot of the activities that they pursue that generates economic growth stop happening. And then you get less economic growth, you get less employment, and you get less tax revenue coming into the government. But again, what they have in common is they want to spend a lot more than they can possibly tax. And the difference is always going to be made up with a printing press. And that is really what gold and silver are already telling you. Like I keep hearing uh, people in the financial media trying to explain why gold's going up. Oh, gold's going up and silver's going up, but they know there's no inflation, right? So they say, well, you know, gold and silver are going up, not because of inflation, because there's no inflation. So there must be some other reason. And they try to figure out what the other reason is. Well, they, they just don't understand. What gold is telling you is that if you think there's no inflation, you are wrong. Now silver is telling you the same thing. If you think there's no inflation, you're wrong. There is a lot of inflation because that's why people are buying gold and silver. And if more people understood how much inflation there was going to be, then more people would already be buying it and the prices would already be higher. But one of these days, people who aren't buying are going to figure out uh, the message, right? They're going to figure out what the metals are saying, right? These are monetary metals and they are going up for monetary reasons. It's not just about uncertainty. I mean, if you were just buying gold and silver because of uncertainty, that'd be pretty risky because a lot of the things that we're worried about, we know are temporary, right? And there's going to be a resolution, right? And so if people are just going to buy gold when they're worried about uncertainty and then something happens, they're going to sell it, then there's no real gain to be had. What people are doing is they're moving money out of fiat currencies into gold because they recognize that over time their fiat currencies are going to lose value and gold and silver are going to preserve their value. So people are voting with their feet, those who are smart enough to, to, to vote right now, and they are making this switch. And so you're seeing it in these markets. But for people who don't recognize this, who are still so clueless and think there's no inflation because they're fixated on the government CPI numbers. I mean, the government CPI doesn't tell the real story, right? That's that, that's all a, a fiction. I mean, prices are already rising faster than the CPI, which is why the whole thing is a joke when the Federal Reserve says our goal is 2% inflation and their, their, their goal stick is the CPI. Because if the CPI is 2%, then it's probably 3 or 4% or 5%. You can't, based on, you know, say, oh, we, 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 we're going to run our monetary policy to have 2% inflation. And if it's 1.7, then we need to print more money to get it up to 2 when it's probably already well over 2 because you're measuring it uh, using an improper ruler. But the actual inflation rate is already well in excess of the Fed's so-called targets. And that is really what gold and silver are, are telegraphing. But when the next Democrat wins, right, when the reality of recession rears its head, and, you know, if you look at 
Trump's polling numbers. You know, I put a poll up over the weekend and a lot of people jumped all over it and they said, oh, that's a CNN poll. You know, that's a bogus poll. Look, you know, Fox News polls show the same thing. And of course, when Fox shows a poll show the president showing the president losing, you know, the president loses it and starts criticizing Fox News. But if you look at the polls now, today, right, President Trump is polling the lowest of any incumbent president at this time in office since they started taking these polls, which I think is around the Second World War. In fact, at, at this point in their presidency, there was only two incumbent presidents who were trailing in the polls when judging against their prospective opponents, right? Not some unknown guy, but hey, here's a guy that's, you know, leading in the Democratic primary, right? And let's poll this these leaders against the incumbent. There were only two incumbents that weren't winning at this point. One of them was Jimmy Carter, and we know how that worked out for Jimmy Carter. He went on and he lost. The other president who was behind was Barack Obama in his second term, right? And when he was being uh, polled against Mitt Romney, the polls had him losing. But it was a small, you know, uh, trailing, maybe by one point or two. It was within the margin of error of the poll. So maybe he really wasn't behind because he was behind within the poll's margin of error. But if you take a look at Trump, Trump is behind by a huge amount. I forget what it was, seven, eight, nine percentage points. He is losing, losing against every single possible Democratic challenger. Now, before the economy is even in recession, while consumer confidence is still high, the president loses. And in fact, Trump is the first modern president, I guess since, since the Second World War, at this point in his presidency, where his approval rating is lower than the percentage of the popular vote that he received. Meaning that if you were elected president, and let's say you got 52% of the vote, remember, Trump lost the popular vote. He didn't even win it. But let's say you were a president and you got 52% of the popular vote. Uh, and now at this point in your presidency, your approval rating is higher than that. So maybe it's 53 or 54 or 55. Trump is the first incumbent president at this stage in his presidency where his approval rating is less than the percentage of people who voted for him. Right? That's never happened. See, so normally what happens is you if, you're, if you have the approval of a higher number of people that voted for you, that means that there are people who didn't vote for you who approve of the job that you're doing. Just because you're president, they didn't vote for you, but they kind of give you the benefit of the doubt and they approve the job that you're doing even though they voted for your opponent. Well, in the case of Trump, that's not happening. In fact, some of the people who voted for Trump are not approving of the job that he's doing as president. And if they're not approving now, where do you see how much they disapprove in 2020 when this economy is in a recession. But even if we're not in a recession, right, which I think is less likely than, than, than that we will be, it's going to be an extremely slow growth economy. No question about it. In fact, by the time voters go to the polls, the economic growth under Trump will have substantially been below what it was under Obama, meaning that all of the tax cuts, right, all of the extra deficit didn't even buy us more growth than we had under Barack Obama. 
Now, maybe the unemployment rate will still be lower than it was when Obama left office, but I kind of think that between now and then, the employment indicators, which are lagging numbers, are going to turn. And Trump is going to have to run for re-election with a higher unemployment rate than the one he inherited. I also think that inflation will pick up. So he's going to have to run with a higher inflation weight than the one that he inherited. And there's a good chance that the stock market will surrender all of the early gains uh, from the Trump presidency and the stock market will be lower. In fact, the best performing assets of the Trump term are likely to be gold and silver, which of course is very ironic because one thing that a lot of Trump voters did as soon as Trump was elected was they sold their gold and silver. Right, because they thought, oh, this is great. Trump's going to make America great again. I, I, I held on to my gold and silver throughout the Obama term. But now, you know what? I don't need it anymore. I'm going to put my money in the stock market because we got Donald Trump. He's going to make America great again. So they did the exact wrong thing. They got rid of their gold and silver, and they put more money into an overvalued U.S. stock market. And then they lost money in the U.S. stock market. But more importantly, they avoided the gains that they would have had had they kept their money in gold and silver or the greater gains they would have enjoyed had they actually bought more gold and silver or gold and silver stocks, right? And, you know, so if you haven't, again, bought any of your gold and silver, you need to do it. I mean, don't wait for new highs. You know, I still get, I look on the internet and people still want to, you know, razz me for the fact that, oh, but Peter, you know, when gold got up to 17, 1800, you were telling people to buy it. And if I had followed your advice back then, look, look how much money I would be down. Well, if you had followed my advice back then, you would be up, right? Because my advice when gold was at $1,700 an ounce was the same as it was when it was at $300 an ounce, right? Because I've been very consistent. Buy gold, buy silver, have 5 to 10% of your portfolio in gold and silver. And if you follow that advice, only when gold was at $1,700, $1, you're ahead today, right? Because if you put, even if you maxed out at 10%, put 10% in, well, after a drop from 17, 1800 to 1000, and especially if you had some of your portfolio in the stock market and your gold went down and your stock portfolio went up, well, now your percentage that you had for gold was much lower than 10% or whatever your, your weighting goal was. And now that you had an opportunity to buy more gold, right, to accumulate more ounces of gold to bring your weighting back up to 10%. And had you been buying the dips, Ever since gold peaked out, you would be way ahead of the game by now. I mean, we're back at 1550. We're not that far off the 1900 high. We're much further off the, the $1,050 low. Do you realize that since gold bottomed out in December of 2015, gold has moved up by 50%? That is a nice gain since December of 2015. Everybody was writing gold's obituary back then. Everybody was shorting gold, and it's quietly moved up by 50%. And you know what? It's still quiet. Nobody's buying it. There's not a bunch of fanfare. So I think people buying it now, even after this move up, even people buying silver now at $19 an ounce, that's not expensive. I mean, gold is, silver is coming off its all-time record low uh, relative to gold. Silver is still very low today, relative to gold. It's certainly low relative to its own all-time high of $50, right? So silver is cheap. You know, even the people, if you bought Mene jewelry, remember when I started talking about Mene jewelry, I had Roy Sabag on and we, you know, introduced the company and, you know, Mene jewelry makes uh, jewelry out of 24 karat gold. Anybody who bought Mene jewelry, right, 
because Jeweler Gold was around 1,200, less than 1,200, I think, when uh, I, I did the interview with Roy Sabag. Anyone who bought many jewelry can actually turn around and sell that jewelry at a profit, right? The price of gold has gone up by enough to offset, at least on most of the pieces, the design premium that many charges to take that pure gold and make a beautiful necklace or a bracelet or a ring or earrings, whatever you're making, uh, that premium, gold has already risen enough to offset that. I mean, think about that. I mean, what other fashion accessory can you buy and then after you worn it, uh, you know, for six months, is it actually worth more than when you bought it? I mean, in most cases, you if you sell it, you'd be lucky to get 10, 20 cents on the dollar. You know, going to a pawn shop or one of you know trying to sell it on eBay or Etsy or some of these you know uh, websites where you sell you know used uh, clothes or used jewelry or stuff like that. But here, uh, people were able to uh, buy jewelry, enjoy it, and if they don't want it, they can actually cash it in and and get not only get all their money back, but even get more than their money back. And of course, that I think is going to continue. So if you don't already have any Minet jewelry, you should go to the website, check it out. I mean, it's not the best way to buy gold. You're going, to get, you're going to get your gold a lot cheaper at Shift Gold. The premiums are much lower, but hands down, it is the best way ever to buy jewelry. If you're going to buy jewelry anyway, right, this is how you want to do it. You want to do it at, at Minet. Of course, why I'm on the subject of gold, I don't want to ignore the subject of fool's gold, and that is Bitcoin, because Bitcoin has made another move. It is back above 10,000. In fact, as I'm recording, it's about 10,700. And at the end of last week, it was down at like 9,400, 9,500. So we had a big pop in the price of a Bitcoin. And initially, I thought maybe this had to do with more speculation about it being a safe haven until I heard the news this morning. And maybe some other people knew the news and they kind of were front running it. But the uh, SEC has finally approved a, a, a Bitcoin ETF. Now, it's not the type of ETF that anybody can buy like GLD. It is a special type of ETF that is only available for uh, accredited institutional investors. So uh, the SEC is not saying that, you know, mom and pop, normal individuals can gamble using cryptocurrencies. Of course, they could do that anyway, right? But they're just not going to do it with the SEC's blessing, right? And, and anybody can go and, and buy Bitcoin if they want it. They can go and open up a Coinbase account. They could buy all the Bitcoin they want. But if they want to buy it in their brokerage account, if they want to buy it through Charles Schwab in a product that is sanctioned by the SEC, they're, they're not going to buy Bitcoin, right? But what the SEC is saying is, okay, if you're a sophisticated institution and you know, you're smart enough uh, to know what you're doing and you want to do something dumb enough to buy Bitcoin, well, we're not going to stop you, right? That's what the SEC is saying. If you want to lose your money in Bitcoin and you're an institution, go ahead and lose it, right? But we're not going to allow individuals... Uh, to throw their money away. That's really what they're saying. But of course, the Bitcoin community is very excited and it's bid up the price of Bitcoin, obviously trying to front run the demand that people think is coming from this new institutional ETF. Well, you know what? I think that the people who are buying Bitcoin now are overestimating the amount of demand that is going to be emanating from institutions to buy this product. I mean, I really don't think that there's a bunch of institutions who have been dying to buy Bitcoin but who haven't done it because there was no ETF, right? If you really wanted to buy Bitcoin, I mean, you could buy it, right? You could go in there and, and, and buy Bitcoin directly. And if you really have to buy it in an exchange, I mean, plenty of people have bought uh, that uh, grayscale 
uh, Bitcoin trust, even though it trades at a premium and has a crazy 2% a year management fee, which I laugh at when, you know, when, when, when Barry and I were debating and he was talking about how you have such a high storage cost to store gold and silver. Well, no one I know pays 2% a year to store their gold, yet he charges 2% a year to store your Bitcoin. Uh, so that's a much more expensive proposition than having gold stored. And of course, you can store all the gold you want yourself. It doesn't cost anything. Uh, but I, you know, obviously... Uh, institutions could buy that, and maybe some of them have. So I don't think there's a lot of buying waiting uh, for this ETF. So I think that people who are trying to front run that demand are going to end up losing money. I think the price is going to sell back off uh, when the people who bought the rumor try to sell the fact, but there's nobody to take the other side of the trade. Meanwhile, if you look at what's happening in the cryptocurrency space, Bitcoin dominance has now surged above 70%. It's at 70.5% as I'm recording. That means that the market capitalization of Bitcoin is 70.5% of the market capitalization of all of the other uh, cryptocurrencies. There's almost 2,600 of these things, right? I'm at coinmarketcap.com and there's exactly 2,579 cryptocurrencies and 70.5% of the combined market cap of all of them is Bitcoin. Right. So that means the rest of those, the 2,578 2, cryptocurrencies, they make up the other 29.5% of the crypto market cap. And the 70.5% is Bitcoin. Now, I'm watching on Twitter, and a lot of the, the, the Bitcoin bugs are touting this new rise of Bitcoin again as proof that Bitcoin is the best, that Bitcoin is working, that it is dominating the cryptocurrency market. And this is a reason to be bullish on Bitcoin. And this is a reason to buy Bitcoin because it's shining brighter and it's the gold, it's the digital gold of the crypto universe. And yes, this is validating uh, the Bitcoin story. Well, the problem with this argument is that the very same people making this argument about a year ago, a year and a half ago, we're making the exact opposite argument, right? When Bitcoin was losing dominance, because at one point, Bitcoin was 90%, right, or more. It was the only cryptocurrency. And then more cryptocurrencies started to come, and then it went down to 80%, right? And then there was a huge decline in Bitcoin dominance, particularly in 2017, right, as the Bitcoin bubble was really forming and getting big. And Bitcoin dominance got down to about 33%, right? Only one-third of all the crypto market cap uh, was Bitcoin. And as this was happening, all of the people who are now so excited that Bitcoin is regaining the dominance that it lost, as it was losing dominance, they were saying that was a great thing. And the reason it was supposedly a good thing was it showed that the crypto uh, currency uh, market was growing, that it was, you know, catching on, that the Bitcoin concept was being validated uh, by more cryptocurrencies, proving, you know, proof of uh, a work or uh, proving that the concept worked. It was becoming mainstream, it was becoming normal. And what they were saying back then was that. Bitcoin was going to continue to lose share, right, as the the market matured and more and more currencies were created, but that Bitcoin would always be the main currency. It would always be kind of like the reserve currency of, of the crypto monetary system and that Bitcoin would always gain value, right? It would keep going up, but it would be 
shrinking in in share. It would be, you know, a, 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 a smaller part of a larger pie. So the Bitcoin pie itself would be bigger, right? The price was going to go up, but its market cap was going to keep falling as uh, cryptocurrencies became more mainstream and there were more cryptocurrencies and they were more widely used and more widely expected. And that was the story that was driving all the demand, right? Not just for Bitcoin, but all the altcoins. Well, that whole thing has collapsed, right? The altcoins have imploded. Bitcoin has regained most of the market cap that it lost. But now all the people that were touting uh, Bitcoin's loss of market value as a good thing for Bitcoin and a good thing for cryptos are now arguing the exact opposite point. Or they're saying that the exact opposite situation is also good for Bitcoin. So Bitcoin was good. It was a good thing when Bitcoin was losing market share. And now it's also a good thing when it's gaining market share. I mean, what, the way I look at it is cryptos are in trouble, right? That's what's happening. People who piled into these cryptocurrencies are trying to get out. Right. And what is also happening is as Bitcoin is gaining value relative to other cryptocurrencies, people who are in other cryptocurrencies are moving more of their funds into Bitcoin. Right. Because Bitcoin is considered like the blue chip. So if you're worried about your crypto portfolio, but you still want crypto exposure and you want to kind of move down the risk curve of crypto, well, you're getting out of some of these higher risk cryptos going into a slightly less risky crypto bitcoin and so that's really what's going on it's money coming out of these altcoins uh, that is fueling uh, bitcoin it's not new money coming into bitcoin that isn't in cryptocurrency it's just the money that's already in cryptocurrency going into bitcoin so the pie is shrinking and bitcoin is getting a bigger pot of that of that shrinking pie but the writing is on the wall here and all the bitcoin bugs are refusing to acknowledge it but you know the bloom is coming off the crypto rose that's what's happening and you know a lot of these companies too that were mining these altcoins have a bunch of bitcoin and their altcoins are losing value they have to pay their expenses they have employees they have rent how are they going to raise the cash they got to sell their bitcoin they got to sell the currency that hasn't gone down i mean there's going to be a constant supply of bitcoins for sale in the crypto industry, right? Especially if they're, you know, they're involved in these altcoins and the altcoins keep losing value. The only things they have that they can sell to get any, you know, currency to stay afloat is to sell their Bitcoin. So I think this recent rally is going to fail just like all the rallies have been failing in Bitcoin. And by the way, you know, I pointed out uh, early in this podcast, since the end of May, silver's up better than 30%. Right. Well, yeah, Bitcoin is up too. right. We've had a big rally in Bitcoin since the end of May, but it's only up 25 percent or not quite 25 percent. So Bitcoin up 25 percent, silver up 30 percent. I mean, so why not just be in silver? I mean, silver is beating Bitcoin. Bitcoin made a big move. Silver made an even bigger move. Right. Silver is real money. Silver is a monetary metal. It's not, you know, fool's goal like Bitcoin. And, you know, so if you want, you know, to benefit from a weak dollar from a potential fiat currency crisis, just buy silver. You got more upside than Bitcoin. I think you have much more upside. I think silver has a better chance of going up 5x or 10x than Bitcoin from this point. 
But I think Bitcoin has a far greater chance of going down by 90% than silver. In fact, I think silver has no chance of going down by 90%. And I think it's most likely that Bitcoin will go down by 90% or more. So when it comes to gambling, you've got far more upside potential and far less downside risk with silver uh, than you do with Bitcoin.